0: Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 6 this evening. We'll spend just a moment here before we venture elsewhere, but I want to begin by reminding you that for the past several weeks, uh, the ministers have been taking turns addressing uh, lessons in this series that we have called Less. And the focus of this series has been on the text of Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, where we are given the seven things the Lord hates. Let's read that as a refresher again this evening. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So Proverbs 6 identifies seven things the Lord hates, and the assumption is that as God's people, we will hate these seven things as well. And hating these things means that they are not part of our life. Hating these things means that that we're going to seek to eliminate them from our conduct or from our attitude or from our mindsets. Hating these things means that these things will become less and less a part of who we are. And tonight we're going to turn our attention to the first phrase that you see in verse 18 of Proverbs chapter 6. That phrase which says that God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. Here's what stands out to me about that terminology. A heart that devises wicked plans. That phrase tells me that God doesn't just hate wicked action. He also hates wicked intention. God doesn't just hate wicked action, he also hates wicked intention. And I believe the best way to illustrate this, the the best way to explain this, is just to look at the story of one character in Scripture. To look at the story of a guy named Balaam. So if you will, turn over to the book of Numbers, to the 22nd chapter. That's where we're introduced to Balaam. If you're not familiar with Balaam, he was a prophet of God. But what's unique is he just kind of appeared on the scene, out of nowhere, with no backstory whatsoever. And no connection to God's chosen people of Israel who were in the process of relocating from Egypt to the Promised Land. In this regard, he's kind of like Melchizedek that king of Salem, who's also identified as a priest of God Most High in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17. Melchizedek just appears on the scene in the life of Abram. Out of nowhere, no backstory, no particularly unique connection to Abraham and his descendants. Both Balaam and Melchizedek Melchizedek have these unique connections intros into the story of Scripture and right now all you really need to know about Balaam is that he was one of God's prophets who lived and operated independently apart from the nation of Israel. And Balaam's story that we're about to examine here starting in Numbers chapter 22 is is linked to the story of another guy named Balak. Now you're gonna have to keep these two straight. Balaam is the prophet of God Balak is the king of Moab. Now, Moab is an enemy nation when it comes to Israel. Uh, The Moabites were descendants of Lot in the incestuous relationship he had with his two daughters after the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, explosion, if you will. And Moab is a territory that the Israelites are going to have to cross through in order to get to the promised land. And at this moment, in Numbers chapter 22, the Israelites are encamped near Balak's territory. Territory over which he is king. And Numbers chapter 22, verses 2 and 3 tell us that the people of Moab were overcome with fear of the people of Israel. Why? Number one, because the people of Israel were many. And number two, because they had seen and heard about all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Now, a little backstory about the Amorites. They appear in the previous chapter, Numbers chapter 21. They too were inhabiting a territory that the Israelites would have to pass through in their route from Egypt to Canaan. Now, the first part of the territory of the Amorites that the Israelites approached belonged to a guy named King Sihon. And if you look at Numbers chapter 21, verses 21 through 26, you find out that the Israelites sent a message to Sihon requesting peaceful passage through his territory and promising that if they would just allow the Israelites to pass through their land, they wouldn't touch any crops, they wouldn't draw any water, they wouldn't abuse or use their land in any way, shape, or form. All they wanted to do was to walk by on the walk through that land using the road, the king's highway, I believe it's called, just to pass safely on to their next destination. Well, Sion, the king of uh, of the Amorites here, refused their request and instead attacked them with his army. And God delivered the Amorites into the hands of the Israelites. They took Sihon's territory and inhabited all their towns instead. Well, now they had to move on at the end of Numbers 21 to another Amorite territory, an area called Bashan that was uh, ruled by King Og. And it's interesting because when they approached his territory, there's not even an opportunity for them to send a request for peaceful passage, because Og immediately attacks them. And once again, God delivered Israel from his hands, and we're told in Numbers chapter 21, verse 35, that they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. So in Numbers chapter 21, two different kings associated with the Amorites are defeated and their land taken into possession of Israel. And now we get to chapter 22, and Balak, the king of the Moabites, sees this Israelite encampment just on the edge of his own territory, and he's thinking to himself, well, they're certainly going to do to me what they did to the Amorites. I need a better plan, because I don't have the army to stand up to them. And so, here's his plan. I know of a prophet And I know that whatever that prophet speaks, happens. So why don't I get that prophet to come over here and curse these people? And so what Balak chooses to do, his solution to their dilemma, is to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites. Look at Balak's message for Balaam in Numbers chapter 22, verse 5 and 6. He says, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, before Balaam accepted Balak's offer, he instructed Balak's messengers to spend the night with him so he could have time to consult with the Lord. In verse 8 of Numbers 22. In other words, Balaam handles this situation perfectly. Before he decides whether or not he's going to cooperate with Balak, he seeks God's guidance. You couldn't ask for a better decision out of Balaam right now. Balaam says, before I answer your king, I'm going to talk to mine. And he spends that evening taking the opportunity to communicate with the Lord, and in verse 12, the Lord responds. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And guess what? The next morning, when those messengers woke up, Balaam sent them on their way, saying, The Lord has refused to let me go with you. Balaam Balaam obeyed God's orders explicitly obeyed God's orders right here. At this point, Balaam is admirable. At this point, Balaam is exemplary. At this point, Balaam's the guy you want your daughter to marry. Well, maybe not mine. But Balak is persistent. He sends his messengers back to Balaam a second time. And for this second offer, we're told in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 15 that Balak sent princes, more in number and more honorable than the first ones. And not only did Balak show Balaam the seriousness of his offer by sending more prestigious messengers, but according to verse 16 and 17, he had these messengers tell Balaam, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come curse this people for me. Balak is saying, I'm going to give you whatever you need. I'm going to make this worth your while. If you will come and do this for me, I will compensate you generously. If you don't believe me, look at who I just sent to you. Look at, the, look at how many people I just sent to share this message with you, and look at how important they are. Balak is trying to woo Balaam with a financial gift to come and curse the Israelites. But once again, Balaam responds perfectly. If you look at Numbers chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, he gives as pure of a response as a follower of God could ever give. He says, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Once again, Balaam says, I've got to consult with God before we do anything. And this time, God has a different message for Balaam. When the first group of messengers came to Balaam, God instructed him not to go with them. But this time, God says in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 20, If the men have come to to call you, go with them, but only do what I tell you. God gives Balaam permission to now go with these guys. So like an obedient prophet, the next morning, Balaam gets up, saddles his donkey, and goes with these messengers to meet Balak. Now, here's where things get tricky. The very next verse, Numbers chapter 22, verse 22, the verse that follows Balaam getting up, selling his donkey, and going with these men as the Lord had authorized them to do. The very next verse says, but God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. When you read this at first glance, This seems like a fickle God. One minute he's saying, you can go now, and the next minute he's angry that he went. How are we to understand this? Why is God all of a sudden sending the angel of the Lord to be Balaam's adversary? See, you look, the next few verses tell how this angel of the Lord attempted to kill Balaam on three separate occasions. And Balaam's donkey, who was able to see the angel of the Lord, unlike Balaam himself, thwarted all three attempts. Now, why would God suddenly change his mind about whether or not Balaam should go? Why would God permit Balaam to go to Balak one minute and the very next minute oppose him? Look at what the angel of the Lord said to Balaam in verse 31. This is after the Lord opened Balaam's eyes so that he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. The angel of the Lord said, verse, 30, verse 32 actually, Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. Another translation says your way was reckless and contrary to me. The idea here is that Balaam is not doing what God told him to do. His way is perverse or reckless because he's not doing what God told him to do. But back in verse 20, God told him to go with the messengers back to Balak. And at this moment, he's going like God had told him to do. And that's exactly what Balaam points out. In verse 34, Balaam said, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. Balaam's saying, listen, you, I was told to go, but, and I didn't see you standing in the way, but if you really don't want me to go, I'll turn back around. Balaam assumed that his sin was in not seeing the angel of the Lord. Not seeing him standing in his way, not seeing him in opposition to him. That's what Balaam thought the sin was and thought, well, maybe I need to turn around now because I didn't see this guy and I've sinned. And so that's the sin Balaam confessed to. And that's why he offered to return home. But the angel of the Lord's response clearly identifies Balaam's real sin in verse 35. The angel of the Lord said, Go with the men, but, but speak only the word that I tell you. You see, Balaam was doing what God told him to do by going with these men. But back in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 20, God had also told Balaam to only do what I tell you. The fact that the angel of the Lord had to repeat this part of God's instruction implies that Balaam had determined in his own heart to disobey part of God's orders. In other words, Balaam had already made up his mind that he, would not, that he would say and do not what God told him, but what would make him money. The intent of Balaam's heart was differing from the instructions that the Lord had given him. Now, this is not initially evident in the ongoing storyline because Balaam goes on to meet with Balak and spoke three oracles that are recorded in Numbers chapter 23 and 24. In all three oracles, God put a word in Balaam's mouth so that Balaam was only able to bless the nation of Israel and not curse it. As a result, Balak told Balaam in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 11 that the Lord has held you back from honor. What he means is that since God refused to allow Balaam to curse the nation of Israel, God has prevented Balaam from receiving financial remuneration. But Balaam's sinful intent here May not be evident in this part of the storyline, but it does become evident when you finish the story. So skip to chapter 25, Numbers chapter 25. I want to read the first nine verses with you. Numbers chapter 25. This is the uh, conclusion of these interactions between the, the nation of Moab and the nation of Israel in this ongoing storyline. So numbers chapter 25 verse 1 while Israel lived in Shittim the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped." Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now you may have noticed, we just read nine verses that talked about this situation involving the women of Moab, men of Israel, and not once was Balaam's name mentioned. So how does this have anything to do with Balaam? Now you have to remember that we've already had it Pointed out that by the angel of the Lord standing in his path, Balaam had obviously developed an intention in his heart that was inconsistent with the will of God, or else God would not, not have sent the angel of the Lord to kill him. See, after Balaam failed to curse the nation of Israel on behalf of, of Balak and the Moabites through his spoken oracles. What happens here in Numbers 25 is that the Israelites bring a curse on themselves by engaging in sexual immorality with the Moabites and by worshiping their deities. They are doing things that God had explicitly said in Mosaic Law not to do. You can go back to Exodus chapter 34, verse 16, I believe it is, where there's instructions not to have relationships with, the, with women of other nations because they would lead them astray. And of course, there are in the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20 the instructions not to worship another deity. But what does that have to do with Balaam? There's a couple of New Testament passages that shed light on this for us. So skip over to 2 Peter chapter 2 and notice verse 15 and 16 very quickly. That's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. In a section of his second epistle that warns against false teachers, Peter says this. He says that false teachers have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter's passage implies implies that Balaam did something wrong for gain. Based on what we read earlier, it seems likely that Peter is referring to the fact that Balaam found a way to help Balak so that he could receive the payment that Balak was withholding after he failed to curse the nation of Israel through his oracles. Peter is saying that Balak is the standard of a false prophet who seeks money instead of truth. Now skip over to the book of Revelation, to the second chapter. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. This is part of Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. And in it, Jesus is criticizing some of the members of that church for accepting false teaching. And he says, "...you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality." Jesus' own words here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14 imply that Balaam advised Balak to use the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men into engaging in sexual immorality and thereby bringing a curse on themselves by not adhering to God's standard of purity. It seems that Balaam may not have been mentioned in Numbers chapter 25, but subsequent biblical texts indicate that he was ultimately the one who orchestrated the curse that came on Israel in Numbers chapter 25. A curse that Israel brought on themselves through their own sin. So what we discover is that when Balaam received permission from God to go to Balak, his intent was to do whatever was necessary to get paid even if it meant going against the will of God. And that's why God stood in opposition to Balaam as he rode on his donkey. It wasn't because of a sin that Balaam had committed at that point, but a sin that Balaam had conceived and planned to do at that point. When we consider Proverbs chapter 6 and these seven things God hates, Most of them are references to things that we do. Haughty eyes, hands that shed innocent blood, a lying tongue. Those are activities. But then we get to this one that appears in verse 18, a heart that devises wickedness. That's not as much something you do as it is something you intend, something you plan something you conceive. And do you remember what the book of James says about sin? It's James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. James says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, James indicates that sin has a birthing process. Sin is not limited to your actions. Sin includes your intentions. And it is a heart that is planning, conceiving, inventing such wickedness that God hates. You see, there are some of us, some of us, who are struggling because we're already thinking about that next sin we're going to commit. We're already planning to sin in the future. We already have an idea that we're going to sin again. It's a heart that devises wickedness. God wants hearts that are so in love with him that they're not thinking about the next sin. That they're not planning the next sin. That they're not devising a way in which they can commit the next sin. See, the message for tonight is pretty basic. The message for tonight is that there needs to be less sin in our lives. There needs to be less sins of commission. That's when you do what God has forbidden. There needs to be less sins of omission. That's when you fail to do what God has commanded. And there needs to be less sins of intention. That's when the intent of your heart is to do the opposite of God's will before you ever get around to acting on it. Because Scripture declares that God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. And may we never forget the words of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, which says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God knows what's on your heart right now. God can read your heart at this very moment. Remember, God's the one who doesn't look at outward appearance. He's the one that looks at the heart. As God looked at your heart this evening, what does he see? Does he see a pure heart? Does he see a heart in the image of his? Does he see a man or a woman after his own heart? Or does he see a heart that's already thinking about the next sin? A heart whose intent is to do the opposite of God's will. This evening it may be that your heart is not right. And something needs to change. Maybe you need to repent tonight of a heart that has had the wrong intent. Maybe, Maybe you've got sin that you have never had washed away. And maybe you need to confess your belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repent of your sins, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Tonight we gather here because we want to challenge each other to be more like Christ and less like the world. And it may just be that you need to do something tonight to make that happen in your own life. If there's anything we can do for you, we invite you to come.